men and especially groups of men bound together by bonds of 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 loyalty and of, of shared ideals are a revolutionary yes. force in history. Shared and, ideals. And this is this is something that they are very, very afraid of. You know, the mm. the the ideal model that they want is they want uh, an atomized, depressed, overweight, uh, porn addicted consumer. That's what they want. Mm. That's what they want you to mm. be as a man. Today, we're talking with the star of Tucker Carlson's documentary, The End of Man. Thinker, vitalist and bodybuilder, raw egg nationalist. Uh, we talk about the reinvigoration of male spirit, recovering rites of passage, fraternal organization, embodied nature of true virtue and the WEF's evil plans for our food supply and his new book, which proposes ways men can fight back against it. So there's a link to his book in the description. Fraternal organizations were essentially banned, really. They were essentially, they've been with women pushing into scouts, with um, pushing into men's spaces. It seems like there's a deep need out there, I think, with men to have places that they can form brotherly bonds. And I think that's been crucial, really. Friendships of men, pairs of men, and Bap talks about this, actually, in his book. And I agree. And you see this in the movie, uh, Man Who Would Be King, which you've probably seen. Yes, yeah, classic. A classic, right? But we don't make movies like this anymore. We don't celebrate enough this this chads, men, pairs of men, groups of men getting together to to go on the quest. How can men bond together? How how have you done that? How have you done that in your life and what you've in your world outside of just the uh, individualistic working on personal vitality? Yeah, no, that, that is a that is a very, very good question, and it's a very pertinent question. Um, it definitely is the case that that male, exclusively male spaces have all but disappeared from the modern world. Mm. And uh, I mean, g- gyms until fairly recently were probably one of the few remaining spaces, but now, of course, they they've been taken over by by women in in yoga pants who you know like to. Like to film uh, film videos of men being creepy or apparently being creepy, but um, y- yeah, I mean, I what have I done in my life in that in that regard? Well, I was a martial artist for a long time, and I mean that was that was definitely one way that I met like-minded people with similar ideals and and uh, sort of uh, I made some made some very good friends. Um, I used to I used to compete. Uh, only as an amateur, but I did, but I did used to compete, and uh, yeah, that was that 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 was probably the closest thing that I that I got to a to a fraternity outside university. I was involved in in some groups like that at university, but but sadly, uh, they I say sadly they, they weren't male only fraternities in the way that they had been before. So they mm. had they had uh, the membership rules had changed, and you know there was women were admitted. Um, I mean, there were still sort of secret societies, so they still had a certain sort of kind of mystery to them and mystique to them. But but yeah. the character had definitely changed. Um, mm. I mean, I think any any attempt to form a kind of uh, a male fraternity is is greeted with deep deep suspicion now. Mm. And that was that was very definitely one of the responses to the Tucker Carlson documentary that I was in, The End of Men. The, the the unsurprising 
reaction from a lot of, of left liberals and mainstream media types and, and just ordinary people on Twitter was, oh, this is incredibly gay. All these mm. all these men, you know, spending spending time together, doing wrestling, yeah. shooting, going horse riding, yes. uh, taking their shirts off and you know, lifting weights and all that. I mean, they've got to be gay, right? They're they're secretly yes. gay because because men don't uh, heterosexual men don't do that heterosexual men don't want to spend their time with other men they want to spend their time with you know w- women who they'll hopefully hopefully have sex with um this is this is what they try to do though isn't it and you see this in you see this in the literature post 1945 they're constantly trying to say they even said this about nelson that oh it's homosexual his relationship when he kissed uh, kiss me Heine or whatever he said kiss right? me kiss me Hardy no. kiss me Hardy. Hardy yeah that has nothing to do with that it's about it's that's what men used to do and again it's it's even connected to this idea of English stoicism which is that is that's wrong we were like the the Vikings used to be like that it's brotherly it's 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 uh, no it's 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 gregarious it's energetic it's a vital emotional uh, not l- loose emotional, but vital towards something, towards strong bonds of friendships. And this idea of trying to say, oh, they were gay. Firstly, I think it's like they try to claim it for their side or whatever, and also to sort of degenerate it. So you can't have. Uh, and I, I did notice that Bap said that in his book as well, but I've always thought that too. I, always, I suspected that. I suspect that immediately when I saw accounts of this, because I'm constantly looking into these heroic stories especially with these, you know, groups, chads. And they're never, it's never that. It's, well, almost <laughs> never that. Uh, but they are, yeah, they constantly do. Or what do you think the reason is that they try to do that? Would you, do you agree with that assessment I made? Uh, y- yes, I do. Listen, so I wrote, uh, I actually wrote, uh, my second article for American Mind was about the reaction to the Tucker documentary, was about, yeah. specific, well, it was the, the, the piece is called Eke Homos, which is a, a play on Eke Homo, Low the Man, from mm. um, from the Bible in reference to Jesus, but um, it was about the fact that that um, the principal reaction to the documentary trailer dropping in, I think it was April, was oh this is a homoerotic fever dream. Tucker is you know Tucker is um, putting his uh, homoerotic fantasies on display for all to see that kind of stuff. And I I tried to I tried to to get to the bottom of why it is that 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 kind of reaction is so common to men mm. wanting to because it is and and I, I talk about other examples than just the than just the documentary uh things like these these constant attempts that you see to you talked about nelson and hardy but you know you see it with every single great every single great male historical figure will will have visited upon him the indignity of a, a revisionist a revisionist attempt to, uh, at the very least, say he was bisexual, and and you know, at the fullest to say that he was a closeted homosexual. So you know, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, all of these great uh, these great uh, men from history, you know, they'll have their lives picked over, and and any any any, you know, potential Achilles, and even mythological figures, even Achilles. Yeah. You know, so Achilles, of course, Achilles was so angry about Patroclus, his cousin, being killed because he actually secretly, you know, he was secretly in a gay relationship with him. You know, he secretly, you know, harbored homoerotic uh, feelings for him. But mm. but why do they do this? Well, 
I mean, in this article, I say it's it's largely because men and especially groups of men bound together by bonds of 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 loyalty and of, of shared ideals are a revolutionary yes. force in history. Shared and, ideals. And this is this is something that they are very, very afraid of. You know, the mm. the, the ideal model that they want is they want uh, an atomized, depressed, overweight, uh, porn addicted consumer. That's what they want. Mm. That's what they want you to mm. be as a man. They don't want you to be a, a, an upstanding, responsible, self-sufficient, uh, disciplined individual who pursues some higher goal than consumption of cultural products that are and that, produced by corporations and that's and that's the point there too higher goals the last thing they're interested in is the kind of low sexuality you know that's the last it's they're possessed by something they are that that's what unites them a daemon a, a, a either a god a, a, a spirit or a goal or an idea you could call it as well that's what's possessed them. That's what unites them, or else they would never have come together in the first place. Not some low sexuality. That's the last, the most uninteresting part anyway, even if it was true, which it isn't in most cases. It's the daemon that's interesting. It, that's, and that's what they want to kill. They want to kill this spirit. They want to kill... And, and th this is interesting here too, is that there might be a difference, right? Because you talk a lot about vitality. There might be a difference between vitality and mana, whereas mana might be related to, uh, like, say, William Blake. He probably didn't have much physical vitality, but he was possessed by something which gave him mana. He had a certain type of thing that fueled him, like, say, a spiritual thing. A he had an animating force for sure. I mean, he had yes. a, he had a, he had a vision. He had a vision, and he yeah he I mean he really did have a. He really did have a a vital force that drove him to produce some of the most uh, amazing artwork and poetry, you know, of the of the nineteenth century of the Romantic movement and probably of all time. Mm -hmm. um, but no, there's a there's a great uh, quote that I actually uh, by C.S. Lewis that I that I um, use in that piece that I was talking about, Eke Homer's in, in American Mind. I can't remember the exact phrasing of it, but he said something like those who cannot conceive of uh friendship as a substantive love but can only see in it eros betray the fact that they have never had a real friend themselves yes and that's yes. i mean that's it that's it in a nutshell it's like you know you, you you're so shallow that you can't understand you can't understand what it means actually to have a real friend and so what you want to do is you want to drag everyone else down to your into the gutter with you basically and that that plot and i mean platonic love is what it is it's not it's has, it has nothing to do with eros and i've experienced it, and I, it it's just a, it's a force towards it could be couldn't be more removed from it, that sexuality couldn't be more removed from it it doesn't even enter into the equation it's about uh uh it's about being if anything it's a it's a, a lightness of being a lightness of teleology that you see in another chap that, ah, he's got it. He has this vital thing that I've got. He's like me in being, not in physicality, in being, in this, this force. And that draw, and draws you together. And if that force can be united towards a goal and an end, and usually it is an end that drives you together in the first place, a purpose, 
if that can be driven towards something, if we can, and even all of us, if we can find a way to help people drive towards that, uh, you know, anything's possible, right? That's what opens up possibility. And I've been thinking a lot about um, about rites of passage. Mm. Rites of passage are something that virtually every society every society has. Uh, I mean, we we have some very minor rites of passage now, but nothing like the kind of rites of passage that traditional societies had. You know, it was it was common it was common in tribal societies for young men at a certain age to be sent off into the wilderness on their own groups of young men of the same age they'd be literally driven from the village by the elders with sticks beaten sent off into the wilderness they would have to they'd have to survive for a set period of time they might also undergo certain ordeals where they might be they might have to walk on thorns that had been scattered on the floor and stuff like that yeah these rites of passage bond people together bond men together men who undergo rites of passage become it's a personal transformation but it's also a social transformation because it it, it makes you it makes you a part of a of a group that has you know that has shared the same ordeal and and mm. you know, that's a that's like an anthropological or a sociological uh explanation of what rites of passage do um mm. And that is that is one way that you bind men together. That is one way that you yes. create groups of men with a shared sense of identity and a shared sense of purpose. And so, the the, the problem, I suppose, in in the modern world is that um, if you try to create rites of passage, then they sort of seem artificial in the way that obviously in a in a traditional society they don't. You know, traditional societies have customs and they're largely unquestioned. Uh, but uh, but I do think that the absence of the absence of uh, these really powerful rites of rites of passage in our society is a problem, and it's definitely a problem for young men. Um, and it's, it's a, a private school, for instance. I I think part of those rites of passage and part of those group, it's kind of like group cognition. If you have a ritual, like a sports team, people at home listening, if you doubt this. There's a reason why sports teams have mascots. So when you get men together in a group and you have a shared teleology or one emerges and you all, your minds start to form a distributed cognition, which in turn starts to form a kind of daemon, which is you're not, you're in the individuals, you are this thing that emerges. You are, and that, you could think about that like the coach, right? You could think about that, the coach, and he's the sort of mind of it. Or you might even want to think about a day. If you want to think about a daemon like Santa, when you act out Santa to your kids and say "Ho, ho, ho, Merry Christmas," says Santa, you're not yourself. You're Santa in that moment. That is a daemon. That's its spirit. It's been transmitted to you. But in a team, in a rite of passage, this thing, you want that thing to possess you. That's what. That's what leads you to this idea and this this feeling of this being of being a part of something of something greater than yourself is to be. I mean, possessed by something. People might see that as bad, but well, I, th I think, we uh, I think yeah, and I, but also I think that people today are very much possessed by ideals, but the wrong ideals. Uh, and they think they're not. They think yeah. they're not. That's the trouble. You only, that, you only need to watch TikTok videos 
to see that people really are are possessed by something that is not not entirely within themselves uh in fact it's you know de very definitely entering them from outside and causing them to behave in a in a very particular very harmful way so yeah i mean the, the distributed cognition thing is is interesting very very interesting and i think i think that's a very very good way of, of putting it and in the absence of a wholesome geist or a wholesome distributed cognition a god that's old god or a robin hood or or, or a in the absence of that you be in, you're invaded by things that you because uh, you think that you're above it because you think that science protects you because you think that you know the things that you don't it's given you the arrogance of that and because you don't have one of these positive things you're an easy target and so people need to think about that is that what would you the only thing that protects you against egregores is a positive one right or else you're susceptible to it is a positive one or a positive frame or else you're just yeah it's it's uh and we don't have that we don't have it can be done but we don't have a system for that so i, I know what you mean though about people being skeptical about new fraternal organizations and that sort of thing or new practices and they should be but i think if they're grounded in tradition if they're grounded in practices and customs of the past and of, of the nation of the people then i think that solves a lot of those problems if we can i don't know if we can do that i mean we're kind of in the situation where we're in this internet archipelago people of our politics or our region so that's the troublesome thing but there are a lot of people that are searching for this i just got contacted by an engineer who wants to pay me to help him sort of find his telos right so that means that you know and i want to and, and, and that's not really what i do but i mean i do that on the channel but i want i want there to be a system so this guy doesn't have to be you know clamoring at it um because he he spoke specifically about he's he, fe he feels that I hope he, and I'm sure he doesn't mind me talking about this because no one knows who it is or whose name it is. But he feels that he's just being a part of the machine. He has he works on quantum cameras, on uh, medical devices. He's an engineer and that sort of thing. But he, and but he's obviously of our sort of politics and wants to be a part of something higher, right? And that goes to show that this liberal machine, it isn't valueless. It's value. It's the value of the whole thing is a stepping back. It's an aloofness to to everything. Yes, that's it's, a value an, in an ironic, it's an ironic distancing, I think. Yes, and that's what science is itself. It's that that creates the ironic distancing is that nothing matters because that's what science does. Of course, is you're abstracting, you're pulling away, and you're and you're uh, and you're analyzing those abstractions. You're pulling it out of its context, right? But people think that's valueless, but no, it is. It's a value of itself, but it it's a it's a value of the wrong kind, and it because this guy would have been back in the day this guy would have been probably building neo-gothic structures or artifacts and and that's what i'll tell him is, is that well that's what you need you need a quest a quest is what people are after being a part of a wider teleology building artifacts not uh distanced machines building because men because we're not women we don't they can quite easily just have a child there's their meaning done but for us, we have to create artifacts. And so for you in your life, when did you first discover your quest? What was the, your inciting incident that put you on the path to spreading your message, to being a part of this wider movement? 
wanting to actually participate in it? Because obviously it's important to you. Obviously it's driving you because you're putting out all this work. So what was the key thing that that launched you into this? Your your yeah. That's uh, that's quite that's quite a question. Um, I mean, I'd say I'd say for 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 long enough, I had been aimless and aimless and searching. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd been I'd been successful in my life. I'd, I'd done some pretty some pretty cool things, and and um, you know, studied in some in some pretty cool places, and 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 been successful by certain metrics, but. Uh, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't have a, a deeper purpose. I mean, at, at various points, I've been, I've been drawn, drawn towards religion, and and had had dalliances, but never, never really, never really been able to to go any any deeper than the kind of surface level. I tried to believe and 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 wanted to believe, but couldn't, um, despite sort of immersing myself in that world um in, in in my personal life and also and also uh, by study but no i mean it, it was it, it was kind of it was a fortuitous uh it, it was just uh it was just a, a kind of a, a wonderful mistake really so i i had a lurker account and i'd been i'd been following bronze age pervert uh, after i'd read his so i read his book when it came out and i was just sort of lurking around on twitter following bronze age pervert laughing at his tweets and um and uh, the tweets of various sort of people within his in within his sort of uh, surroundings. Um, uh, and then, I mean, I, I've I've been involved in fitness all, all my. I've been I've been physically fit. I was always a, a sportsman at school, and, and as I said, I did martial arts and 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 stuff like that. So I've always been in good shape. I've always been interested in health and fitness. But I I just I just got behind this hashtag raw egg nationalism. Started mm. knocking back raw eggs. I'd been I'd been weight training uh, with a barbell in, in in a way that I hadn't before. So I was sort of a, a big into calisthenics and so-called functional fitness kettlebells, all that kind of stuff. I was very lean when I was a martial artist. It was kind of like a welter welterweight sort of um, welterweight, uh, you know, sort of eleven stone, one hundred and fifty-four mm. pounds of that. But um, no, so I, I just got into that, and then. And then I had this I had this funny idea to do a cookbook because I'm I'm a pretty good pretty good home cook uh, mm. and that just the reaction to that was just was was crazy I I mean I didn't expect anybody to be interested in it but tens of thousands of people downloaded it and uh, mm. and so that got that got me into the into the into the writing side of this and and actually you know producing my own substantial content and then since then really i've the response has just been so has just been so positive and i mean when i had instagram i've been banned off instagram now after the tucker carlson documentary in fact i was banned the wow, day really the, i was banned the day the tucker documentary dropped so i'm, I'm sure what? that was just a coincidence but uh but when i was on instagram i because my uh, direct messages were open on there um mm. I would have I'd have all these different people sending me messages about how what I'd written had had changed their life or changed their outlook. I mean, some people mm. really did say that it had changed their life, and I'd have even young men, you know, eighteen-year-olds, uh, asking me questions, really, really quite consequential questions as well. Like there was this one chap who 
I think was in a pretty bad place. He, he had, I think he was 17 or 18 and he was, didn't have much faith in himself. He obviously hadn't had a particularly, particularly kind of nourishing upbringing. And um, he was asking me if he could change. He, he, he said to me, I, you know, I'm 17, 18, uh, is there still time for me to be someone else? Which is, uh, you know, I mean, that's a hell of a question. And it, it really, really kind of knocked me for six, actually, to to think that somebody of his age could feel that maybe his life actually was over for him. Mm. Uh, so I, I, mean, I talked for him, talked to him for you know, actually a couple of months, just trying to give him useful, practical advice that could bolster his self-esteem and make him realise that his life was was only just beginning and that he had yes. everything in front of him and that if he wanted to be something else then he could that he could you know if he if he put in some determined work and, and worked out and, and read the right books and tried to get out to meet people that he could you know within, yes. a, year, within a year's time he could be a totally unrecognizable person to himself yes. today um so so it was it's things like that, that that have really filled me with a sense of of mission about about what i mm. do um and also just to see you know I mean, things like the tucker carlson documentary to see that the message is is actually getting into the mainstream now and people are important people are taking it seriously because it is because it is serious i mean there's, yes, a, lot of, there's a lot of there's a lot of fun involved in all of this and yeah I, but... i've had i've had fun from the start i mean i I, I just start laughing at random moments actually when I think about some of the stuff that's some of the stuff that's happened recently in particular. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, yeah, it's, it's totally it's totally serious. I, I believe in this hundred percent. I believe in I believe in the message. And I, I mean, you've only got to look at someone like uh, Jordan Peterson for all of his f faults and, and failures. I mean, mm. the reaction to Jordan Peterson has been uh, quasi-religious. In many mm. respects, you know, there's there's been a he he is almost, although I think he's kind of resisted it. He is almost a prophetic figure, and he's certainly mm. he's certainly had the effect of a prophet on young men in particular. And it's so obvious that that he is that that, that he has identified a very very deep need. Yes. Very, very deep, a, a vacuum, a, you know, a, a hole in so many, so many young men's lives, um, and uh, yeah, we, we, we've got to do something about it. And the, tr the the trouble is, though, I find with, uh, and yeah, I agree with everything you said about Peterson there. But I think where, in terms of the vacuum, when you apply a sort of classical liberalism, when you apply, and this is what scientists do too, people like John Vivek, all these people have great positive intentions but i find that the universalization of it uh, it's, it puts it back again in this individualist pop rather than well no people want to participate in their people they want to be a part that's what a teleology is it's a people it's people a people has a purpose it has a you know it's not a, a, a it's it's beneath the nation right it's the overarching story. And if you disconnect people from that and make them in this vacuum and say, oh, here's all this stuff that you can do, what are they ultimately serving? They want to serve. They're desperate to serve, right? And when you told that story about that 18-year-old, I, I, you know, that's very, it's moving, man. And, you know, the message needs to be to these people that it, you are your possibilities. Yes, yeah. But those, you, and I'm sure you said stuff along this line, just that, 
It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. I say this all the time. It could be the brewing of ales. It could be gardening, right? But if it's in within the possibilities of your people and your nation, that's a good thing. It could be a simple thing. It's no small thing to celebrate a simple life. Though of course you can, of course you work, you you can you build yourself into your ideal. That that's what a guardian angel is. That's what an angel is. You're moving towards that angel constantly. Your personal angel. It's it's that is your possibilities. But grounded in something, within something, I think helps people understand that there's pathways to that and there's models for it. That's what Nelson is. That's what these great heroes are. They're models. They are daemons, especially Robin. They are still alive right now in the, the intersubjective geist between us, let's say. And so when you take it away, when you say, oh, classical liberal of the West in general, rather than peoples, they don't have these connected teleology and stories to go towards. So I think that's part of the problem. And I think that's pro- I think that's part oh. of the problem, too. I do. I, I think if, if you're a very, very depressed uh, young man who has little motivation, then clean your room is a sufficient narrative within which to reorganize your life. Right. That's yes. that 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 kind of a narrative that humble nonetheless can. Yes. Can be can be profound enough for you to start to, to move in the right direction. But but yes, the, the absence of a like a, a much of a broader narrative within which all the other narratives can fit, I think, is 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 definitely something that uh, is definitely a, a problem with the kind of Peterson vision of Peterson vision of um, self-help. I mean, it, it's funny because I mean, you know, he, he has he has, I think, a very a very profound understanding of of a lot of very important mm. subjects, not not least of all religion. You know, that is that's something that is religion is something that is liable to be treated in the most shallow manner imaginable now, especially especially by liberals. And yet Jordan Peterson is a liberal who actually has a very profound understanding of religion. I think I think also because he's he's grappled with it personally. He's really thought about what it means to be religious and, and how how that might sort of fit into his own life. But but nevertheless he he resists you know, he he he's he's a you know a very very vocal critic of postmodernism, mm. and and you know I mean one of the central tenets of of the postmodern vision is a skepticism towards all meta narratives, right? But mm. that's Jordan Peterson too. I mean, where, where's the where's the meta narrative in in Jordan Peterson's vision of the world? There isn't one. Mm. That's right. Yeah, I read a book. Uh, you probably know. You know, uh, Sun and Steel. Yeah, the Yukomishima. Yeah, this aligns with with Malu Ponti's work about cognition being related to embodiment, and his description and the way he speaks about that is that it's an important. It changed how he saw being itself. It helped him. It helped him align his. And I think this is a great message and for for people who are very intellectual. And a lot of the people on our side are like that. Is that doing this and doing this 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 body work actually gives form to your very being, for, for your very cognition itself? I don't know. I just want to ask you the question: Did that? Did you? I mean, you were always a martial artist, but perhaps you've noticed or you could comment on how that the physical 
how the diet, how the muscles, how all of that has actually informed your being and how perhaps when you've been, perhaps you've been locked away working on books and see the difference between those two things. Because I think that intellectual heady people, it might help them to see that this actually changes and is a benefit to the, to the mind as well. I was, I have in the past been a big fan of Merleau-Ponty. Uh, it's a long time since I read Phenomenology of Perception, but it's, uh, it's a very interesting book. And, and there's this uh, quite simple but very striking phrase, uh, I am my body, which mm. is, which is actually, you know, is actually quite a radical, it's actually quite a radical rejection of the Western tradition of philosophy up to that point. Cartesian dualism, you know, where you're just uh, you're a you're a mind piloting a piloting a meat body, um, which is exactly what you're not. Um, mm. You're not, you know, your your brain is an integrated part of your body. You are mm. your cognition, your cognition, the the rational uh, cognition, you know, where we bring objects into our mind's eye and where we where we think to ourselves in language or, or explicitly is actually rests on a, a deeper embodied pre-rational understanding and engagement with the world. And that, that, that really came out of Heidegger um, yes. being in time. That was his, that was his, I think one of his great contributions to Western philosophy was to, to make people realize that um, cognition in many respects when we're engaging with the world is a secondary phenomenon not not the price not the primary phenomenon um and and in fact it it reaches out too that's another one of his innovations is that being itself is extended and that's just so for me that was so huge this this especially even when you connect it again back to this point of the the being of the people the being of the people is that you're interconnected with your nation, with the tell. The te it's not just a thing that transmits through metaphors. It's that your being reaches out and opens to each other, and that's. It's just it, well, when you when it when when you convert into that way of thinking, it's pretty mind blowing, and grounding. For sure, for sure. I mean, but I yes. I mean, although I was a, uh, I've been in very good shape most of my life. I have been through a few kind of dissolute phases especially when i was a, especially at various points when i was at university where i didn't i probably didn't take as good care of myself as i had previously i mean for, for one thing when you're at university it's it's difficult to afford nice food um mm. and when you've got a lot of when you've got a lot of work to do and you're doing a lot of partying then um unless you are unless you're maybe you know at, at university as a sportsman then there's less of an incentive to um to take good care of yourself so i mean yeah i i once i left university and, and and got back into fitness it was it was very clear to me that actually if i had if i had taken a bit bit better care of myself at university then i probably would have actually had a much easier time of of the work um yeah and i do i mean now when i when i write things because i because I do work out and I, and I eat well and I, and I look after myself, then it's it's a, it's it's definitely a, a different experience than if you're not doing that. Um, and I, I mean, one of the things that I like to do is I like to, I like to to walk to um, mm. 
to stir up my feelings. And yes. I mean, that's something that a lot of, that's something that Heidegger used to do. Um, mm. And I, and uh, I mean, the, the, the Greek word for method, methodos, means a path. Mm. And mm. so I, I can remember seeing this, this quite funny video of a postmodern philosopher. I think it was Avatel Ronel or someone saying that, um, uh, uh, musing on musing on the fact that you know philosophy is like walking a path and mm. blah blah blah. That's why Heidegger used to do it and all that kind of stuff. But but yes, I mean the the sun and steel thing is is very interesting because obviously Mishima in many respects was what you might you might call him a sort of uh, you know like an effeminate intellectual in certain respects, mm. and I think he certainly felt that he was that at certain points. But then. When he discovered uh, weight training and and um, really sort of tried to engage with the ideal of of, of the samurai, then uh, he he um, he became something else. He became a, a creation of his own will, and that was that was reflected in his in his work and and in the trajectory of his life and his ultimate. Um, his, his death his his very mm. very strange uh but very very brave death um yeah it's it's an have you finished sun and steel then or are you just reading it now no i finished it yeah i, I didn't know didn't know that the book described his death though because... no it, no it doesn't but it, but what he wanted to do was he he wanted to have a beautiful body so that so that mm. his body would be beautiful when he was died that it wouldn't be his body wouldn't be a disgrace to him when he mm. committed seppuku I think I think mm. that he had the idea of dying by seppuku for a long time, and mm. I mean one of his one of his story, short stories I can't remember I think it's called Honor it's called mm. Honor or Glory something like that is about a young Japanese soldier I think maybe like in the 1930s committing seppuku with mm. his with his beautiful young wife and there are these long there's a very long sort of um, description of of his body and and you know the fact that his mm. body look is is so pristine and you know he he looks um he looks the part you know he's ready for a glorious death mm. there, there there are very definitely layers to all of this you know i mean the, the mm. common the common criticism of of the focus on aesthetics is that it's well it's just aesthetics right it's just surface deep it's just mm. it's just uh it's not well, it's... Uh, yeah it, it, you know that it's just that it's just it's superficial basically and and that uh, actually it doesn't have any any importance beyond beyond that whereas mm. actually i would i would say well no i mean it's it's procedural it's 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 linked to well it, i think it should be linked to a procedural way of being in some form but it also unlocks possibility so it depends on your frame of mind because i i remember there is some I know because Bap, he posts a lot of these physique photos. I think with the Greeks, all these statues, these men are doing something. You know, they have something in their hand. It's Zeus. He's got some sort of teleology in his hand, right? Some sort of thing, his helmet, whatever it is, that is towards something. Because that's what men are. We do. Uh, if it's just a physique photo on its own, perhaps that you could have that as a criticism. But ultimately, if it's connected to what it should be, I mean, ultimately, even if the aesthetic is the goal, the person inside is is, is transformed. 
and has this possibility and has this, you know, it is kind of connected to what you were talking about with Heidegger, walking the path, procedural. All language ultimately comes from something that is embodied as an imitation of that. So what you do when you go and walk along the path, and like you mentioned, and perhaps you can expand upon your, your practices and, and the like of what you do with your ideas and such, and like you mentioned, even your daily routine. But anyway, when you walk on that path, you are, you are interacting and grounding all your ideas because that's what they originally come from. And when you look deep enough into language, and that's a problem too with our language too, and perhaps we should actually have more words that are anglo-saxon because they're very simple football you know it's very easy to look at an anglo-saxon word and determine its root its grounding whereas when you have a uh, a, a word that is 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 based on a latin or a different language and we have a lot of those and uh, french words it's hard to know what they were they are originally like projection for instance is forward throw forth throw right? And if you told that to a person, they'd understand what subject, object is too. Object is from the thing hither. From the thing hither. Thrown from the thing hither. Object, right? And they perhaps, it'd be so easy for them. And that's why the Germans have that advantage, in a way, with their language being uh, uh, mostly their, their German, not 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 to have roots in these other languages but anyway but on that point of practices and grounding i don't what is your routine what do you those how is that a, what, what is your root perhaps people might be able to take something away from it or use a practice of yours to ground themselves and their ideas but yeah well i like to i mean i wake up quite early i go to bed quite early too um mm. and, and one of the one of the things that people should realize especially if they want to improve their improve their physical health, improve their hormonal profile is that sleep is an essential, absolutely essential part of, of being healthy, proper sleep. And most people don't sleep properly for various mm. reasons. I mean, if you're, if you're overweight, then you might have sleep apnea, which is where the um, airway gets obstructed at night and it wakes you up. Even if you don't realize that you've woken up, it can wake you up just enough to disturb your sleep. And that will happen multiple times a night. Um, but people, you know, people eat too late, people um, play with their phones at night. Uh, they do all sorts of things that, um, you know, prevent them from being able to sleep. So I, I, I sleep is important to me. Um, I don't I don't, you know, sleep 10 hours or 12 hours. I just try to get like a solid, a solid eight hours. Um, when I wake up in the morning, I tend to Sometimes I sometimes I I do sort of uh, meditation like exercises. A deep breathing I think is good. I think I think visualizing what you want to do in the day is a very very good way of orienting yourself at the beginning. And I think that um, you know people people who find themselves aimlessly sort of um, wandering through the day rather than actually doing anything purposeful could definitely benefit from. A little bit of visualization and a little bit of thought about what they want to achieve during the day um so that's something that i i like to do in the mornings uh i often quite like to listen to uh, a bit of inspiring music as well which is mm. often um mm. often uh the conan the barbarian soundtrack maybe something like yeah, that that's great um, yeah yeah I, f I find myself listening to movie soundtracks quite a lot um yes. but uh 
when I work, I mean, I, I, I work during the day, but I, I actually find that I do my best work in the evening. Uh, there's mm. something about, I mean, I, I really used to be a night owl at one point mm. in my life and I would stay up very late writing and, but I actually think that that's, I think that that's bad because obviously that eats mm. into your sleep and, and there is a qualitative difference between sleep, uh, during normal hours and sleep outside normal hours. So you mm. can get eight hours of sleep a night and still, and it's still bad sleep because it's at the wrong time, you know, mm. I mean, that's why. That's why shift workers, people who work in hospitals, uh, nurses and doctors end up getting very overweight and unhealthy because they're not mm. sleeping. They're not sleeping as they should be sleeping, even if they are getting eight hours or however long you need. Um, uh, and routine, uh, routine is, uh, I find your body understands temporal zones. So for me, it's really important. It takes about two weeks to habituate. Uh, something but once that happens it'll know the time that comes along so that's why people have trouble as they try to habituate something they think oh i don't feel like doing this yeah you will after you do it one little bit at a time you start with one small thing habituate that for two weeks then the next week then the next week and you build up a, a virtue engine you build up a you know i use a stoic i have a stoic practice which is a, a, a checking of conscience i do that in the morning i just i wake up i meditate i uh have a stoic uh uh well it's just all it is is simply writing down what your 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 the the practices that you're the main things you're trying to do during the day i've all of course i've got all these things i habituate but and at the end i check all the things oh what habits did i do what habits uh, what did i omit uh that i wanted to do what were the vices that i enacted and uh what were the things that i uh, committed to and also i do one other thing which is um I, uh, what, uh, uh, it's, what are the things was I able to in real time? Was I able to negotiate with a thing that was trying to get me to do something that was a vice? <laughs> because if you can, you can keep track of that or whatever, whatever the force is, because you have things in the unconscious that pull you in these other directions, mm, right? Yeah, of course. Archetypes, daemons, whatever you want to call them. They'll try do that. And if you can, you, if you can notice that in real time, but anyway, that's just my, uh, spiel of what i do but um no I think, I think that's i think that's i think that's powerful i think that people i think that yes people are people are moved by all sorts of conscious and unconscious uncon and mm -hmm. unconscious forces and one of the first one of the first major things you need to do is to try and understand what it is that is animating you because mm. you, you you'll often i mean people People are very, very naive. People, people think you know, that they're that they're uncomplicated and that they understand their motives and that they can say with a you know, hand on heart that they're good, uh, mm. that their intentions are good, and all that kind of stuff. And it's not, it's not true. Of course, it's no, not true. Yes. Um, so yes, yeah, so so getting a handle on on what is motivating, what is moving you, what you is preventing you from from realizing your ideals what's getting in the way what's helping you I, th I think that's very very powerful and, and that is yes that is a stoic practice and i think marcus aurelius um mm. recommends that doesn't he, in the meditation yes. to do that kind of thing um and that would definitely be a benefit for a lot of people i mean and you the don't thing know is, what's down oh sorry go I was just gonna... no i was just gonna say that the thing is that people don't people don't really have the right attitude to understand improvement Improvements mm. along improvement is a long improvements a lifelong thing, really. Yes. 
and um, it takes place in 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 very small increments. Mm. That that I mean, over t- over time, then it's noticeable. But on, on a day to day basis, then you're a lot of it is is you know sort of eluding your consciousness, um, mm. and that's where that's where the the religious attitude, I think, certainly a Christian attitude, is is helpful because mm. it teaches it teaches a certain kind of humility. Mm. Uh, it teaches you to well. There's this great Carl Jung quote where he says something along the lines of people can't understand religion today because they're looking uh they're looking upwards or they're looking too high you know people mm. people um you know when they think of religion they're looking to the so they're looking to the to the sky they're looking to the to the celestial when actually really what what the religious attitude is is it's uh it's a kind of attention to the everyday um, mm we want we want easy transcendence rather than the that's kind right. of hard, the kind of hard work that actually goes into that goes into bettering oneself and maybe becoming becoming worthier of um entrance to heaven at the end of your life whatever um yeah we want a drug or we want a a, a joe rogan experience uh what is it called that drug dmt to go there no you know it's a it's a it's a that's a that's a very that is a that is a good point about about DMT as a substitute for genuine religious experience and it's mm. and it's so and it's so prevalent you know so many people talk about DMT now and ayahuasca mm. and and there's another Carl Jung quote where I think he says that you should you should be aware of uh, Jordan Peterson I think this is why I'm getting all these Carl Jung quotes is from Jordan mm. Peterson but he says something like beware of unearned knowledge mm. with re- with regard to um, these psychedelics because and you you don't know you don't know how e- sorry i just interrupted you because why sorry go no i was just gonna say because because i mean when when you look for instance at psychedelic use in traditional societies then it was they weren't doing it all the time you know the, mm. the native american peoples and and um uh siberian shamans all these kind of people weren't microdosing every day they weren't, mm. um, you know, t- having a little hit of, of mushrooms as a as a pick me up, and then maybe a big hit every mm. couple of days. You know, the, when they took psychedelics, it was it was for a very particular purpose, and it was and it was all codified in in elaborate ritual, and you know, you you had to be initiated into it. You had to earn mm. the ability to to go on a to go on a shamanic journey or to to take DMT and contact the the machine elves um and such things are possible without them too right of course it's a long whole lifetime a monk might work towards that but william blake's a good example of it i mean he was born that way but such things are possible in terms of breaking through to sort of pure being or whatnot so yes of course they were an important part of, of of ritual and and that sort of thing but um yeah, you don't notice that it's a slow pathway up a ladder, like you were saying. You're also, like you were saying, on the point of you're more evil than you realize. And the more the more you are, you also don't notice the evil forces in your life. Again, what you said earlier about this point of not knowing yourself, right? You don't know what's down there, for one. And because you are saturated by this, uh, the evil that's around you, when it affects you, when it comes in, you're easily, you're very easily persuaded by it. It doesn't have as large effect on you 
but you're very easily, uh, you know, set off your will or your goals. But for someone who is virtuous, a great saint or a virtuous ascetic hero, a knight, a classical Greek hero, they are more affected by it, but less tempted by it. So evil effects are really, are really uh, say uh, evil gets in for a, for a saint or something. That's a big, it wounds him. But he's not tempted like, like you are. Whereas you're the sort of opposite. Jung said that. This is a Jung quote, by the way, basically, is that he talks about this in his, uh, his book, um, uh, Response to Job. But that's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Is that the more virtuous you become, less tempted you are, but the more you feel and have a sense for what is degenerate or what, and if, if it got into you, it, it, it wounds you. That's good, though. You're sensitive to it, but you're less tempted by it. Yeah. Well, I think there's, I think there's a, there's a kind of mature realism to actual virtue rather than naive virtue. So naive, a naively virtuous person would simply say, well, I'm good and I'm incapable of evil. I'm incapable mm. of, I'm incapable of doing bad things because I'm good. But the truth is that actually somebody like that is usually just lucky enough never to have been in a position where they could actually do some real harm. Mm. It's people, it's people who are in a position to do harm and despite the temptations, despite all of the, the easy inducements to do harm, decide not to do it that are mm. truly, truly virtuous. And they're also likely to be the people who would be the first to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm dangerous. I, I, have to, I have to watch myself. I have to pay mm. attention to what I'm doing because I know that I could actually just as easily do great harm as 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 good well the fact the first time people are sort of propositional they just have this propositional idea in their mind they don't have a virtue because a virtue is a habituated habituated set of practices like you with your bodybuilding you have a virtue because you've built up this virtue engine it's an engine it's not a proposition like these people or, or virtue signalers have that is just a, a stupid set of propositional ideas. Real virtue is that engine, the habituated patterns of action that give you the possibility to act virtuously. And then you become a virtue carrier and say you want, and it allows you to be a hero, right? Say Robin Hood, you have his pattern of action. Here, there's a whole set of virtue practices behind that that give him the virtue first. Then you can meet heroic patterns of action after that. So there's a whole, you know, the whole spectrum of stuff underneath that. That is what true virtue really is. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting actually to go back to the to Merleau-Ponty and the and the sort of phenomenological approach to cognition and and uh, embodied behaviour because you know in in Aristotle in uh, his ethical system then an essential part of ethics is phronesis, which is practical wisdom, mm. Mm. Uh, and so that is you know that's you build up a body of practical wisdom that allows you to behave virtuously mm. but then in the perhaps in the in the sort of uh, merleau-ponty's kind of vision of what it's actually like to inhabit your body and to act what's really going on is you're building up perhaps embodied dispositions what virtue is virtue isn't necessarily uh practical wisdom it's it's embodied dispositions that are yes Sort of habitual and, and precognitive it might to begin with of course uh if you're an ethical novice let's say then 
yes, you have to think a lot about what you're doing in order to avoid straying from the path. Mm. But then as you become habituated, as you become an ethical master, you might say, mm. or an ethical uh, advanced sort of practitioner of ethics, then actually less and less of it becomes uh, explicitly rational and you know, you, yeah, you've, you've, you've habituated yourself. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Mm. It's it's interesting. I mean, ethics, ethics, and ethical behaviour is an incredibly, incredibly interesting subject, and it's um, mm. it's one that goes far beyond the the kind of ridiculous, uh, ridiculously reductive vision of ethics as just a series of rules that you follow. Yeah, that Kantian proposition. Yeah, rules yeah. or commandments, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's just a totally empty. Mm. It's like it's not even it's not even a, like a child's vision of ethics, really. It's it's a bizarre. It's amazing that we've ever ended up with with serious philosophers or supposedly serious philosophers saying that that is what ethics yeah. consists of is is following absolute rules and yeah, it's just nonsense. It's obviously so obviously nonsense. It is to us now, but you can see how Kant back in the day. I don't know. That was that this sort of big rationalism thing had welled up, and ah, oh, we have it. We have it. This transcendental, you know, we can work this out. Even I mean, of course, he worked out also too that epistemology was you couldn't know things for certain. So his sort of categorical imperative, while being a mistake, at least he his great works were to say, well, we don't really know anything in terms mm -hmm. of sub subject, object, or original. I know what you mean, though. And yeah, so I mean, he's I, trying. He's trying. I think he was trying to ground ethics, yeah, in the face of that absolute uncertainty, mm. of, of you know, of the epistemological uncertainty that he had that he had created. Because obviously, he wanted to. He wanted there to be such a thing as objective morality. He wanted there to be something that transcended the individual. Um, but yeah, I mean, we we tie we do tie ourselves in knots about. Mm about ethics which is probably isn't about probably in some respects isn't a bad thing but it definitely leads us down some, down some strange paths but um i i think it's that that's to get back to this i think the proposition as part of my project is find is using a proposition to find it to say okay here's a proposition this isn't ultimately the thing itself this is just saying this is basically the the a label for a description of a pattern behavior so we can get rid of the bullshit fake gaming values of our government who have pasted over real english values which are a moral impulsion from within from the value hierarchy within which are connected to of course virtues and, and body behaviors so we need to sort of do that work to get us away from these fake values that actually game us for instance protestant work ethic what that really is underneath that is bleak heroic necessity it's connected to deep and these things are connected to daemons as well. That bleak heroic necessity goes back to a, back to these pagan gods. It's this this Dunkirk spirit. You probably know Dunkirk spirit. That's that's bleak heroic necessity too. And uh, the other thing is English stoicism. That's a fake value. That's a uh, Victorian invention that removes the vital force or holds back. And it was in the upper classes anyway. Holds back the Englishman's vital force. Holds back his because he's gregarious and he's always has been. Right, that hasn't changed. Chesterton talked about that as well. That stoicism is a is a particular set of practices. The idea that that's in the, the actual moral impulse. No, it's sort of put on top of the mm. moral impulsion on vital vital force or manner. Right, Wordsworth. So why don't we talk about this 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 verse and and how that's connected to your to your book? 
I use them in my new book, The Eggs Benedict Auction, the first mm. two verses, as uh, an example of a particular attitude to our past, to our mm. distant past, mm. to our uh, to the lives of our ancestors who were hunter-gatherers rather than agriculturalists. So he mm. says, hard is the life when naked and unhoused, mm. wasted by the long days, fruitless pains. Uh, you know that is the life of a that is the life of a hunter gatherer before agriculture, right? So life was mm. life was as Thomas Hobbes said of the state of nature: life is nasty, brutish, and short. Mm. And uh, thank God for agriculture and progress, which saved us from such a wretched existence. Well, the truth of the the truth of the matter is that actually the transition to agriculture was anything but pleasant for the majority mm. of people who. Who took part in it, and that's that's one of the principal themes of of the book, the Eggs Benedict Auction, is that mm. um, uh, the agricultural revolution was a nightmare for most people, and the Great Reset, which is which uh, is a modern day agricultural new agricultural revolution, will be the same. And mm. mo a lot of the book is devoted to drawing out parallels between the Neolithic Revolution. The agricultural revolution in the near east about ten thousand years ago and what the globalists want to do with the great reset and in particular what they want to do with or what they want to do to food production and consumption and it goes far beyond just making people eat bugs mm. and the do the domination of techne i i find and the will the in this poem and and I think also your book, as it represents, we're talking about this is the same thing, the same theme. It's this domination of the will. And you see it racking Wordsworth in this poem as he talks about it. This It's his will for something. Oh, I want this more money or want this, whatever it is. And how he talks about that in how, oh, thinking about the people that have more money and how, how a good experience racks you uh, when you're in bad times and such. He's also talking about a spire being above moving towards a spy. And I see, I see that there's this will, this emergence of this reason. You see it from the, you, know, the it's, you can see this enlightenment in this and the worship of that. And also, like you say, casting down the daemons. He mentions daemons in this as well, like speaking against these gods, which are actually the things that protect us from these forces like the WEF. They don't want you to have that. They want to control you with this rational will, with the techne, with this overarching machine, they don't want you to have these local daemons, these local, these local spirits that that have an end, that 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 have a have a, a culture or a people. They don't want you to be self-sustained by either your spiritual nature or physically with farming. With like you mentioned in this book, with the the Russians having this homes, this this uh, growing your own food, this growing your own eggs and having a small plot of land in the local rather than relying on an overarching machine. They don't want that. They, they want to get rid of that so they can dominate it. But... Absolutely. Absolutely. The, uh, the great reset model of agriculture is a, is a globalist model in, in every respect. It's, it's uh, domination by corporations, corporate, uh, they call it stakeholder capitalism, but it's really it's a form of corporate socialism. That's the best way to think of it. I think it's a mm. form of corporate socialism. Um, so, yes, I mean, no, in, in the Great Reset future, then there will be no small producers of, of 
food. You know, you won't be able to go to your local farm to get eggs or milk or anything like that. You'll be buying oat or potato milk from a supermarket and uh, and uh, plant-based eggs instead of real eggs. You won't be able to consume any animal products. And the thing that people don't realize is that this agenda is very, very well advanced already. You know, we've, we're, we're quite far along the road towards this towards this vision it won't take very much and mm. the inflation that uh, we're all subject to at the moment and that's making life so hard for ordinary people is is a useful tool uh for the globalists and in fact there was this unbelievable unbelievable op-ed in the new york times uh it came out while i was writing the book but i managed to incorporate it into the book uh basically um about the fact that inflation is actually, uh, I think they use this phrase, uh, a driver of beneficial behavioural change. So, mm. pricing people out oh, of meat. yeah, pricing pricing people out of eating meat is good for the planet, and we should be happy that that's happening. Wow! To print more money, and honestly, the more this stuff sort of emerges, the more I start thinking pandemic you know because of the inflation i don't know i'm not making any claims i'm just saying that all this stuff it could be just a coincidence but the the inflation the fact that so much money's printed and forces that and then it's part of their agenda as well god yeah and they've just destroyed destroyed small businesses um yeah I, yeah it's 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 very difficult not to uh it's very I'm difficult not saying not it to, is. Not, just... it's very difficult not to speculate though isn't it mm. yes <laughs> But and the indeed. small business thing is, is really key is what's so gross about it because the, the small business was the modern way and I don't mean this, the sort of grubby merchant business, I mean the freeholder that's the yeoman, mm -hmm. that's what England yeah. invented, the yeoman was, a war, was his own warrior caste who was brought into the war because every able-bodied man in England was ordered to train with the longbow, when he came back from those European wars with this new skill, with slaying the chivalry he was in that caste then and then he became this freeholder so he supported the king above those grubby middle merchants, those grubby managers and statists, mm. right? He was a part of it in a deep cultural way. And they're destroying that guy. They're destroying that small business owner, that, tra that, that uh, freeholder that would have a small portion of land. And they've sort of pulled that. That's the last holdout, really, these small business operators that they're, that they're taking out. Um, yeah, it's just gross what, they, what well, they're the, doing. The yeoman vision... The English, the the sort of English vision of the of the yeoman, of the virtuous yeoman, I mean that 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 was that was a huge influence on the American founding fathers as well, especially mm. Thomas Jefferson. Mm. Thomas Jefferson's vision of America was of a nation of small farmers, mm. uh, a virtuous nation of small farmers, uh, not not a commercial nation. He wanted mm. America to be a, a nation that was grounded in grounded in uh, producing its own food, tilling the land, the kind of hard so, sort of uh, Republican virtue as, as you know, sort of cultivated through cultivating the land. And I mean, that's, that's also a, it's a very ancient ideal that you see in ancient Rome. You, know, mm. you see all of, you see these poets like Horace harking back to, um, uh, back to the easy life or not the easy life rather the the ideal life of the mm. of the yeoman farmer before before rome became a huge city so there's one of his um uh 
poems that begins uh, blessed is he who far from the cares of city life tends his paternal flock tends his paternal herds of, of cows you know that's the mm. that's the the contrast between this sort of bustling metropolitan commercial life full of meaningless cares and you know the 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 ideal sort of virtue of a of a manly man raising mm. cattle on his on his ancestral lands it's it's a very very powerful very very ancient yes. um, image in in european uh in european uh thought i think and uh, um, yeah one that is definitely is definitely about to be snuffed out and this guy he he's not a this is an egalitarian either it's been it gets painted as that this is it's it's done by it's lifted up by the populace by the popular mm. that's what robin hood is he's lifted up but he's it's virtuous it's earned it's made it's not he's not a peasant the yeoman is a new the yeoman is not a peasant but he's a pathway that everyone can aspire to that's yes. the difference is that it's not like france where it's the sort of uh, peasant and the the ancient regime it's different than that but it's still hierarchical He's mm. loyal. He's part of a telos. He's part of a. He's he again. He comes from the warrior caste. Again, he was a bowman. He was a. You serve the king. He's part of it. It's like in the Robin Hood legends. It's he eats the king's deer and he loves no man more than he loves the king. <laughs> he's of the land itself, right? He disobeys yeah. the state's law, which is the which is the deer, right? The, and the king's unaware of it, and he makes the king aware of what's going on, and they defeat the middle managers together. But I, I do think it's a really important point to understand that it's not egalitarian. It's not this leveling off. No, it's an opportunity to rise within a hierarchy. It's mm. a plot of land to be able to do that, to, 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 you know, what no kernel of nourishing corn could come to you, but through that till in the soil that's been given to you to farm, as Emerson talks about. What you are is new in nature. Nobody knows what you can do, nor does he, nor do you until you've tried. Um, that's 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 that transcendentalist idea is connected to that and well they certainly don't want there to be any social mobility anymore mm. that's for sure we're uh, we're all going to be part of a global cattle class of billions of people 10 billion mm. people and then there will be a naught point naught one percent of people and so yeah. what's the what's this what's the uh, you, your book has some solutions in it what can people do to push it push back against this to 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 what can they enact what can they uh... yeah well that's the so that's the eggs benedict of uh, option of the title uh, which mm. is a play on the benedict option by uh, rod dreher but um uh, uh briefly w what i think is i think that there obviously needs to be a political pushback against there needs to be a renewed populism so mm. people do need to start electing or trying to elect populist politicians who who see the Great Reset for what it is and will speak out against it and work against it. There's so there's a obviously there needs to be political organization at the at the nation level. Mm. The, level of the nation. Uh, but people also need to, I think, start a movement to reclaim because I mean the book is about food principally. The book is about the way that social transformations have been built on uh transformations of of a food system in the past like the agricultural revolution and the great reset now is the social transformation is also built on a transformation of food production consumption mm. so people need to reclaim their food basically mm. 
That's one of the principal arguments that I make. They need we need to return to local systems of food production that serve the 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 need the wants and needs of ordinary people in their local communities, rather than simply the the profit margins of global corporations and the corrupt politicians in their pockets. So mm. uh, that's why I use the example of Russian household agriculture in the book because that is you know. Russians produce a significant quantity of their own food and uh, it's organic. They do it on the local level by tending small plots in the countryside, whether they live in the countryside or in the city. Um, and that's a model perhaps for the future of the, mm. that perhaps we could all we could all start to produce a little bit more of our own food and we could mm. uh, support local farms, local farmers uh, and and try to try to wrest control of 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 food back from these big corporations which have which have sickened and weakened us for the last hundred years the last 70 years certainly um yeah they're very willing participants in the great reset for a variety of reasons that i go to and go into in the book in in detail mm. it strikes me that also part of this 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 connection to the land is also both a, a physical necessity, like you're saying, this idea of this uh, the Russian this Russian solution, this, this plot of land, but it's also a spiritual necessity too. It'll have benefits outside of that because the land itself is part of the being of a people. It forms it. Right? There's that Kipling verse. It's like, I am the land of their fathers and me the virtue stays. I will bring mm -hmm. back my children after certain days. Uh, uh, under their feet in the grasses, my clean magic runs. They shall return as strangers. They shall remain as sons over their trees and the branches. My clinging, my of the newborn ancient trees. I weave an incantation and draw them to my knees. So the idea that in me the virtue stays. In me the virtue stays. What well, is virtue? It's a practice, isn't it? Like we talked about earlier in the conversation. So tilling the land and being a part of it will have that effect. Finding, looking back to just in terms of some other ideas about this. Not not only growing food, but understanding the old practices that are involved in the land that you're in that could be america could be australia or new zealand but looking back to the grounding of the of where you came from too england itself and that's what kipling's talking about there he's talking about how the land is connected and dealt with and grounded so, and i uh, there'll be a link to the the book in the description i also want to add on the back of that it's really important we understand what they're up to because if you don't know what's going on and they've been very open about their plans for it so yes they have you have to know what's going to happen so you can plan so you can bind a crypto so you can do whatever it is that you need to do or else you're just going to be if you're unaware like jung talks about if you're unconscious of something then you will become it will automatize in you it'll you will be at its bidding a global plant-based diet will be will be absolutely terrible for human health but it's also mm. a it's also a positive vision for the future too so i'm not trying to black pill anyone although mm. the although the globalist plans are pretty awful should they yeah. come to fruition then i i don't necessarily think they will and i and i think that um uh, I, I, th I think that there are all sorts of tangible things that we can do to try to resist them, and I and I try to to give a good idea of what those things are in the book. So it's a uh, mm. it's an examination, and it's also it's also a manifesto, I would say. But and also, I would recommend uh, your earlier books, uh, even just the the eggs. That's the raw egg nationalism in terms of. Uh, uh, uh what to eat that's the one I, the, the i like that one it's very good thank you so thank you I'll probably so I'll probably so i'm going to say i haven't started yet but i've got the eggs so <laughs> anyway anyway but anyway thanks so much man thanks for coming on uh it's been a go pleasure. and check them 
uh, yeah, yeah, great. I hope we, we'll chat again sometime uh, yeah, as, as the project progresses. Um, yeah, check out the book. It's in the description. Um, all the best.